0: Hello, and welcome to Living with Lupus. I am Paulina, and I am a lupus nephritis warrior. And this is episode two of Living with Lupus. January, I went into the ER at Santa Monica, or UCLA Santa Monica. Now, my reasons are my symptoms of what I was feeling that made me want to go into the hospital or to the ER um, were chest pain, shortness of breath, and high BP. Now, I had already been feeling chest pain. The chest pain wasn't consistent. So it would come and go at the most random times, which kind of made me, or made it easier to not pay attention to it because of how uncommon or how random um, the pain was. uh, Or it would come if I took a, a breath too big, you know, and it's like, okay, well, maybe, um, you know, maybe I just got too much air. I don't know. And uh, so I didn't really think anything of it. It wasn't until on the 18th that before work, I was trying to take a shower. And when going to take the shower and like turning on the faucet, I, um, I almost fainted. Like I had bent over to turn my faucet on and like got super dizzy and, uh, almost fainted. Turned the shower off or turn the faucet off and like called my mom and kind of told her like, look, I thought I was going to be able to, you know, go to work today. And I thought I was good, but I'm gonna be completely honest. Like something's not right. My family had already been telling me, like, weeks prior to me being like, yo, like, kind of have a little bit of chest pain or, you know, it's, man. I'm, I was like, man, I need to work out. Like, walking around the block is hard as hell. Walking up the uh, small incline to get into my um, grandparents' house from the driveway was, like, tiring. Going up a couple of steps, two to three steps to get into the house was, like, exhausting. Um, all of these things, Like everyone was like, you know, that's not normal. You need to go into the hospital. You need to go see someone. Um, not only am I stubborn, but I am so used to adapting to different medical situations or me not feeling a hundred percent that it just felt like one of those situations again, like, oh, well, you know, I'm not feeling good. It- it'll pass. It- it'll pass. Cause they always pass. Um, so I just didn't think anything of it, to be honest. And, um, well, I should have recognized that I was a lot weaker than I normally was. Um, but mind you, I'm always my, my strength level, my energy level is always low because I'm super anemic. Um, my anemia has, has me already feeling some type of way. So my first instinct was Oh, I need to go get another iron transfusion because, you know, I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling tired. Um, It's probably just my anemia acting up. Well, when I went into the ER that day with my high BP, because that that was really the deciding factor, the chest pain that came every now and then the shortness of breath, I was like, you know what, I'll get my iron transfusion because I was getting like, um, Every, every six months I was getting an iron transfusion to like keep, keep my iron count, keep my blood count up because my hemoglobin always runs low. My blood count always runs low. Um, And that alone can make you feel weak. It can make you feel um, kind of like you, you may have a little bit of shortness of breath. Uh, You may be shaky, right? It'll have you feeling unwell already. So my first go-to was, oh, my iron's really low. That's why I'm feeling, you know, not 100%. But when I couldn't shower, oh, that was it for me. I was like, what? Uh Uh-uh, like this isn't right. Um, Something is happening and it's not just you know, my anemia. And if it is, then I can go into the ER because I've done it before where I've gone into the ER and, um, they're like, okay, well, we have to give you a transfusion. Like it's, you're just a little low. Um, but for me, it was the high, the high blood pressure that was kind of concerning. Um, my blood pressure was running at 160 over like 110 and an average blood pressure is like 120 over 80. So having this high blood pressure, really threw me off, right? So I go into the ER and I tell them my symptoms, like, you know, this is what I'm feeling. Um, Not feeling 100%. I have shortness of breath. I have chest pain. They took my BP and saw that it was high. Uh, Their first instinct, I guess, was to do an echocardiogram um, because of the chest pain and the shortness of breath. So, an echocardiogram is pretty much just an ultrasound of the heart. Uh, It's a lot more detailed than a regular ultrasound. Um, There are two types of echocardiograms. Um, The one that I used was called a transthoracic echo. So, specifically, that shows um, how blood flows through the heart and the heart valves, and it's used to detect any damage to the heart specifically um, where it's placed, like the transducer, where it's placed to see if, uh, there is any, like, defect or any damage to my heart is placed on your chest and your upper abdomen. Um, so they use this transducer to send high-frequency waves through your body. Those impulses or those waves end up creating pictures that are then translated um by the radiologist and you know they see like how is the blood moving through the heart? How does it look? Is there any blockages? Or are there any buildup in fluid? Like what's going on with the heart? Um the other type of echo, uh you just go through your throat versus going on out of your body on your chest and your abdomen. Um it still shows you the blood the you know like if there's any like abnormalities but the other one it's called a transesophageal, I think if that's how you pronounce it um that one looks like more specifically for like infection at least that's what I understand um about it still looks for abnormalities in the structure of your heart right how is the blood flowing through but also can look for any infection that might be happening so the one that I used was to see like, how was the blood flowing? Is there any damage to the heart? Because of the chest pain that I was experiencing and the shortness of breath, that was the better option to do. Um, so the echo or the echocardiogram actually showed that I had a pericardial effusion. Now, a pericardial effusion just means that I had a, a lot of buildup in my perica- pericardium. Um, So everyone has a pericardium. Just throwing that out there, a pericardium is just a sac-like structure that surrounds your heart. So if you've ever seen like a double balloon, people who like at Disneyland, they have those like cool like Mickey Mouse balloons um, with the balloon inside the balloon. That's pretty much your like pericardium. Your heart is the inner balloon and your pericardium is the outer balloon, right? The sac surrounding the heart. Um, it's just way smaller. There's an there, it, there should not be any or very minimal space between the heart and the pericardium, pretty much meaning that there should be little to no fluid, like maybe less than a centimeter's worth of fluid, uh, like distance wise, in your heart. So that's probably like a teaspoon or maybe even a half a tablespoon of fluid in the pericardium. So the amount of fluid that I had in my pericardium at the time was about two to three cups of fluid. Um, Also equivalent to 550 cc's for any of those of you who are in the medical field and know what that looks like. Um, For those of you who aren't, it's about two to three cups worth of fluid. So that's like way more than what you should have in your pericardium. Which is why I was experiencing chest pains when I took a deep breath, because when I took a deep breath, my heart was trying to expand um, as at full capacity and was being stopped by the fluid, like the pressure in the fluid um, or the pressure that the fluid was causing was stopping my heart from fully expanding, and it was kind of making it palpitate, and it wasn't allowing me to breathe pretty much. Um, so immediately these doctors are like, "Holy crap, you have a lot of fluid in your heart, and we need to go ahead and um drain it like that's step one into making you feel better like we gotta drain this um so they put me into the procedure room, they drained it, everything went good, uh, so to speak, like the procedure went fine, but the pain was immeasurable like they were like you you're, you're going to feel a little bit of soreness in the area and mind you I was sore. But it was also very painful and how they downplayed that shit was crazy like oh like you'll be fine a little bit of Tylenol you'll be good. I couldn't even take a deep breath with this procedure. Um so the incision is pretty much under my uh my left boob it's like a very small incision maybe less than an inch wide um because all they're doing is sticking a tube all the way through um or past or through my left boob but into the pericardium and just draining that fluid out um they had offered me fentanyl and versat versed during my procedure but i had denied it because well for three reasons Addiction runs in my family, first and foremost, so I was scared that if I did get a taste of fentanyl, I mean, I don't know how that works, but um, I was nervous to even give my body the opportunity to try fentanyl, um, so I said no. But from what I know about fentanyl, um, not only is it highly addictive, but, I mean, that's pretty much it. Like, it's highly addictive. Right, uh, so I just didn't want to do it. I did not want to even try it, and it wasn't until I got out of the procedure room that um and I couldn't breathe, I couldn't take a deep breath because of the pain that i when I first tried Tylenol, the Tylenol wasn't doing jack, like my God, it was like I just wasted <laughs> I wasted this Tylenol pill because. It wasn't helping for the life of me. Um, So anyways, I ended up asking for the fentanyl. The fentanyl made me throw up, like, and throwing up, for those of you who have before, um, which I feel like is pretty much anyone for various reasons, but when you throw up, you use your stomach muscles. And I could not use any of my stomach, my chest, because of the surgery, or the procedure. So it was just super painful. Like the, the pain meds caused me to throw up, but also took the pain away. Um, so it was like a catch 22. Like, do I really want that pain there? If I don't, then okay, take the meds. Um, and then just be ready to throw up pretty much. Anyways, there was a couple of days of me just healing from this procedure. Um, I finally was like, screw fentanyl, you have to give me something else. They ended up giving me dilatin, which is equally, in my opinion, equally as strong. Um, still caused me to throw up. Uh but it wasn't fentanyl. Right? It wasn't fentanyl, is how I was thinking about it in my head. Um, but that that's my first three days in ICU at UCLA, um, moving on to January 20th, when I'm told, hey, looks like your kidneys are failing. When January 20th hit, I was still on pain meds from my, um, procedure from the draining or the fluid draining, um, I was told by my nephrologist at the time that my kidney failure was at 80%. And that means I only had 20% function of my kidneys. And when you're at 20% function with your kidneys, if you didn't know, doctors will um, push dialysis uh, because that's the minimal requirement. People who are at or experiencing um, kidney failure, if they have twenty five percent functioning in their kidneys, they won't. The doctors won't say dialysis. They'll just be like, you know, do what you can to try to keep your function in your kidneys. You still have, you know, twenty five percent. Do what you do what you can. The second you hit twenty percent, they're like, oh no, you need dialysis. We should consider transplant. Um, because I didn't know anything about kidney failure or anything about dialysis or the procedures of dialysis. I had no idea that um that was the case like i mean twenty five twenty to twenty five percent in my opinion isn't that big of a difference. I feel like you could still do some things to you know save your kidneys a bit, but being in the hospital, being on a kidney diet within the hospital um uh, you're restricted to a lot of things. so when this doctor comes in on the twentieth She's quick to be like, "You know, we wanna help you, but we're not sure that you're you're gonna listen pretty much. We're not sure that you're gonna do what you need to do to survive. Are you a compliant patient or not pretty much and for me, I was taken back that she was even questioning my compliance. Um, to begin with. And how she came about it was, um, was alarming. Like, why are you questioning my compliance? What has you, you don't even know me. So what makes you think I'm not going to listen? And uh, mind you, I was on, I was on the opioids at the time um, because of my procedures. So my mind wasn't in the right headspace and she was talking to my mom. So she wasn't even talking to me Uh, she's just kind of like, you know, we want to help her, but we're not sure that she's going to help herself. And in those words being said, I kind of snapped out. It was like I had like this bunch of adrenaline that came through me and like snapped me out of the opioid high. And um, it gave me enough energy or strength to be like, who the hell are you talking to, to this doctor? Like, why Why are you coming here all twisted talking to me about how I'm non-compliant? Like, what is making you feel that way? Um, and having you questioning my compliance. Um, her reaction was that it wasn't that she thought I was non-compliant. It was the fact that the my doctor on the outside of the hospital, my outpatient care nephrologist or kidney doctor, had been listing for months since last year uh, like early 2022 he had been writing in his notes that I was non-compliant that I was a patient who did not listen now that threw me the hell off because I had been seeing my doctor for every every appointment I probably missed a few sure but every appointment I either went missed it and rescheduled and showed up then Or, you know, had a video call, like, regardless of what the type of appointment was, when it was, I went and we talked, we didn't talk for long. Not for my reasoning. I mean, he was only ever in the room for about like 15 to 20 minutes. But um, in that time, I did tell him I wasn't taking my meds. Like, based on my first podcast, I had told you guys that I wasn't taking my meds um, for some time before all of this went down. Um, and with that, like my doctors did know, they didn't know immediately at first, but that's because when doctors find out you're not on medicines, like when I was 12 and I had said like, Oh, I don't want to be on meds anymore. My doctors thought I was suicidal. Like they were quick to bring in the social worker to bring in psychiatrists. They thought I was trying to off myself because I didn't want to take my medicines. Now, I hated my medicines. It wasn't that I didn't want to live. I just didn't like prednisone. I hate steroids. Um, The water retention in my face is, it it gives me really, really bad body dysmorphia. Um, So I, I neglected to tell my doctors at first that I was off my meds. But over time, when I was getting no bad news, appointment after appointment after appointment, um, and no like cause of concern. Like, Hey, we're not sure why your numbers are going up, but they're going up. I told them, I was like, Hey, by the way, I am off my medicines. Um, so yeah, like there's that. And, um, obviously the day I told them that I was off my meds when I was in the outpatient care, they wanted to do a biopsy. They wanted to do blood tests, urine tests, like Uh, just to make sure everything was all right. But I'm like, look, I'm already doing blood works. I don't understand why, you know, we got to do the extreme. But anyways, when I told my kidney doctor and he did that kidney biopsy, according to the doctor in the hospital, that biopsy from April of 2022 showed that my kidneys were already failing. So this doctor that I had prior to all this, because I got a new doctor, He, like, he neglected to tell me that my shit was failing on me, that I was, if he would have told me then, in April of 2022, that my kidneys were failing at the rate that they were, I wouldn't need dialysis now, because, I mean, shit would have changed, right? I wouldn't just be, like, lollygagging left and right, like, you know, going out, having fun, living my best life, like, no, stuff would have for sure changed. I would have been on a kidney diet way back when. Um, but anyways, the reason this doctor came in all twisted, like, we're not sure if we can help you because you might not help yourself was because of the notes that that doctor had wrote in there. So, um, you know, it took a couple of days of me and her building trust within each other in the hospital of being like, I'm not the patient that this doctor has wrote me out to be in his notes, like. You know, I've been sick since, since I was three years old, always having to take meds, always having to be on top of my appointments. Um, So after proving that to her, uh, we started talking about what we have to do in order to not save my kidneys, but save me, you know, like it hit the point of like, you're going to have multiple transplants in your life, and I hope that's something you can um, fathom and understand because uh anyone who gets a transplant at a young age is going to require at least two to three transplants in their lifetimes because kidneys only last about fifteen years you know maximum um, she so was like if you get a living donor it'll last longer, but if you get a a deceased donor, it doesn't last as long um still will last but not as long, Um, which is why I am looking for a living donor, just throwing that out there. Um, But on the 27th of January, I'm pretty much told that we have to start figuring out um, or start the consent process and the procedure process of putting in the dialysis port. They send in this interventional radiologist nurse, Brie Blurstein, um, into the into my room to discuss the procedure, which is to add a non-tunnel dialysis catheter in my neck um uh, to start hemodialysis right or in the hospital. Um this procedure went smoothly. Nothing nothing was super concerning there. It wasn't until they wanted to put in um the other chest catheter so they put in the other chest catheter on february 2nd so i had i had a session a dialysis session with the neck catheter on the 30th it went great nothing was wrong um but it wasn't it was on that day um on the 30th, when I had my first dialysis session that I found out that the procedure staff or the surgery, the surgeon staff had let me out of the procedure room with an exposed site. So the basics of any procedure and any surgery are to, you know, sterilize the site, but also to cover the site after the procedure is done. So, when you have a procedure like just like when you have a cut you clean it you take care of it but then you also cover the wound so that it doesn't get infected i left the procedure room with my dialysis site or the opening of the dialysis like where my skin opened up was completely uncovered um so when I was gonna start my first dialysis session the nurse was like yo my god she comes into the room mind you like me and my mom were like oh hi good morning like not excited to start dialysis but happy that something's getting done you know um this nurse comes in and she's like hi like how you doing she's so sweet yada yada um She's like, Do you mind if I take a look at your dialysis port? You know, we want to make sure everything's good before we bring all the machines in and start the procedure. And we're like, Yeah, like of course. Thank you so much. Like, you're actually the first person to take a look at this thing. Like, how does it look? And I'm like, I'm like, you know, neck, neck tilted. I'm looking to the left, giving her like all the space to look at my sight. And she's like, Oh my God. She takes three steps back immediately, like. She comes in with this positive, beautiful energy and she sees my sight and it was like she saw a fucking ghost. She took three steps back. She takes her phone out. She starts taking a couple photos. She's like, I cannot believe that you were released from the procedure room with this dialysis site covered like this. Your site is not even covered properly. You are at high risk for infection. Mom, we need you to step out of the room and get a gown on. Because you should not be in here with this site open like this. Completely switched the energy of the room, right? Because now she's telling me three days passed by and not one nurse or just one staff on this West Wing floor of UCLA Santa Monica, none of them noticed that my shit was open like this. Um, And I had been complaining that it was hurting, um, you know, that it was hot. And like that, like... He is a risk of infection, but, I mean, luckily I wasn't infected. It was just irritated from me moving it. Um, But not one nurse. I mean, you have day shift. You have night shift. You have people who cover the day shift, people who cover the night shift. You have supervisors coming in here. Um, If another nurse can't cover uh, that, you know, break period, pretty much you have people walking in and out. Luckily, I didn't have... Um, like, guests. I wasn't having people visit me because of what I was going through. I didn't even want people to know what was happening. Like, my closest friends weren't even in the loop of what was going on. It was really just my mom and my dad coming into the hospital at the time. Um, So, luckily, I didn't have anyone coming in because people bring infections, you know, uh, kids bring infections. So, God forbid... I had allowed people to come in between the twenty seventh and the thirtieth of January, where they could have brought in something, right? So after being told that uh, my site was not fully covered and I was at high risk of becoming septic and dying, it opened up a lot of like fear one because what type of surgical team is being is leading around here? Frustration, because what type of care am I receiving um, from the nurses if they can't even do their job of just analyzing the patient? Now I understand I'm not the only patient, but whenever you run your rounds and you start your rounds as a nurse, you're supposed to fully analyze that patient. That's not just taking their vitals. That's also if they did have a procedure, look at the the um, site of the procedure. How does that look? Does it look like it needs a readdressing? Like you need to clean it? Does it look like, uh, you know, something's not right? Like you should know that. And I was told that dialysis nurses on top of registered nurses should know how to address a dialysis site. Now, it isn't the go-to to have a registered R- or a RN um to do the dialysis site. But if there isn't a dialysis team available, then yeah, your nurse should be able to do it. So the dialysis nurse tells the um, tells my nursing staff at the time, like, hey, we need you guys to get the materials to recover this site because she does not have it properly covered. In my opinion, whether or not you know how to do something in the medical field, um you should never tell your patient that you don't know how to do it. You should just be confident in the room. Yeah, yeah. No, of course, we should cover this. Let me go get the materials. If you don't know how to do that shit, then you tell your supervisor, you don't tell the patient. So when the dialysis nurse tells my uh, RN, like, hey, we need to cover this. Let's get the materials. The RN is like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Like we were never taught how to do that. That's not something we do here. We don't do that. I'm sorry, what? Because actually you do do that. So what you're telling me is you don't know how to do it. And on top of that, you're under my care? You're covering me? Oh no, no, no. Like that had me already, you know, just adding to my fear one, but also adding to my anger who the hell are you on my staff? Because she was a floating nurse. So that means that she doesn't work at UCLA permanently. She works between different hospitals, um, which is just low-key even worse. Like you don't even have proper training and you're jumping between hospitals. Like girl, get your shit together. Um, So when February 2nd comes, you know, Time passes, they end up readdressing the situation. I end up complaining to supervisors and supervisors' bosses um, in between this time. And so when, you know, February 2nd comes and I get the procedure change or the dialysis site change from my neck to my chest, changing from the non tunneled dialysis catheter to a permacath catheter, which is a tunneled one. Um, And now it's under my skin. It's starting from my neck and coming out of my right boob. And then connecting to my heart also. But it comes out of my right boob. So there's like two tubes in me pretty much. Um, I got that placement. Everything went smoothly. I had on... I think it was the 30th or in between the 30th and February 2nd when I got the procedure. Actually, it was February 2nd when I got the procedure. Um, Brie comes back into my room and she pretty much just tells me and my mom like, hey, I'm here to get the second consent for the new procedure, the one in the chest versus the one in the neck. You know, this is what it is, yada, yada. And, you know, I'm telling Brie like, look, Brie, I was like, you, you fucked me over by saying this procedure wasn't intense. And she's like, well, you know, it's different for everyone. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I was like, but I do want to tell you, I'm not signing that consent form um, until I know who was in the procedure room with me and who messed up in the procedure room because they were supposed to do, they were supposed to cover it properly and they couldn't even do that. Right. And she's like, well, she becomes defensive. And, like, addressing the situation and looking at the whole situation, if your team is being put down, like, she's a part of the international, or international, interventional radiologist department, like, if your team is being pretty much put down and criticized, your first instinct is to defend your team. I get that. However, your team fucked up, Brie. you know, so... If that's the case, and I'm sitting here telling you I don't feel comfortable, I'm actually scared that your team is going to mess up again because, I mean, they messed up once. And yeah, I got hella lucky that I didn't get any infection. But on top of that, I just, you know, I was just very angry, very angry. And not just her, like. My mom was, or not just me, my mom was with me, and she's equally, probably more angry because, you know, it's her kid that could have died pretty much from just a simple not covering the wound correctly. Um, So I'm telling Bree, like, you know, I want to know who's there. I don't want the same people in the room. And I want to meet the surgeon beforehand this time rather than while I'm being sedated and um you know i'm just giving her these list of things that i want before i sign the consent and none of them were like super hard except i guess you know meeting the surgeon but that still happened um she's like you know i don't know why you want to meet the team like what is the reasoning for that and i explained to her like what happened and i was like you know um kind of just broke it down why she's still super defensive at this point, my mom's like, "How would you feel if your kid went into a procedure and the surgical staff couldn't just cover the wound correctly? you know, rush the procedure damn near um so Bree, you could tell that she's getting agitated, and like I get it like we're not attacking her. we're attacking the fact that who the hell was in the room right? The surgical team messed up a side note, I find out later that um." The surgical team that was in the room that night, because Bree did not want to tell me for the life of her, like, we would not have been able to pull that shit out of Bree. But I find out later that my procedure was done by a resident. Now, a resident is someone who's still in school, still learning how to do these procedures. That is not the problem to me. There's always going to be someone who's just learning, and you're probably going to be the person or the person before you or after you was the person that they tested their skills on, right? So unfortunately, I was the person they tested their skills on. That's not the problem. The problem lies in the fact that, um, the problem lies in the fact that the attending, covering or watching over that resident didn't do their job in properly assessing the situation or like the procedure before letting the resident close out the um uh, procedure. The attending did not see his work. She did not double check that. Now her job in that situation was to double check it, was to make sure that everything was being done correctly and homegirl couldn't even do that. So screw that. I don't want that team in there. After, you know, her kind of Taking in our anger, she cuts off my mom, and she's like, you know what? She didn't die on the table, so I don't see why we're even bringing this up anymore. Now, I know some nurses have really bad bedside manner. I get that, I get that. But Brie, God damn, your bedside manner needs some work. Like, how the hell? Are you getting away with talking to people like that, talking to patients like that? I understand maybe you had a bad day, but you do not tell someone, oh, my God, you didn't die on the table, so let's just leave it in the past. No, thank God I didn't die on the table, because if I did, this would be a whole different fucking conversation. You know, it like, the second she made that comment, I, like, my mom, Once she tried, she was about to go off on Brie. And I was like, look, don't, don't even waste your energy on this girl because we're about to talk to her boss. Fuck that. Like, (laughs) screw Bree, because I'm not wasting my breath on this girl and I'm not going to allow her to talk to me like that. And one, I don't need her to start noting in there that, you know, mom and patient went crazy on me, like. God forbid because we are women of color and unfortunately when we speak our mind and raise our volume just a little bit we're seen as aggressive we're seen as crazy um and we're just not heard the right way uh, so I had to stop my mom from going off on brie and just pretty much sharing with um sharing with Bree that we would be talking to I end up getting my procedure done after I have all my my uh, requirements, right? Meeting the surgeon, finding out who was in the room, speaking to Bree's boss because that shit was just ridiculous. Uh, like it was a procedure that I was told had to get done. So fine, let's get it done. I'm doing what I have to do to survive around here. And uh, pretty much what happens is, you know, the procedure went fine. It went fine. I had a little bit of bleeding beforehand, but it was great. I think I had the procedure around noon or, you know, sometime during the day. And um, it wasn't until midnight that night that the site began to bleed uh, continuously all throughout the night until 8 a.m. Um, so it was just oozing blood from midnight to 8 a.m. This is the night, this is one of the nights that I thought I wasn't gonna, um, survive, that I thought I was gonna die. Uh, now this is only, like, a couple days into my stay at the hospital. Um, it's noted in the in the discharge papers that my site was changed like six times. However, I'm pretty sure it was changed way more than that. It wasn't ever noted that they didn't have the proper materials to take care of the site that was bleeding. It wasn't noted that the doctor didn't do shit. It wasn't noted that supervisors didn't come to the room a lot of the stuff that didn't happen was never noted, uh, is what I'm noticing. So the site was changed more than six times for sure. However, when it started bleeding at midnight, like I was like, Hey, like, I think like it's feeling kind of cold. Uh, I pretty sure something's dripping on my chest. Um, my nurse at the time, she checked it and she's like, Oh my God, like, yes, it is bleeding. Um, and it was bleeding a lot, you know? So she's applying pressure on my site. She gets some new gauze. Cause I had some gauze just sitting there. Um, and she starts applying it and I'm like, okay, cool. Like, thank you. She changes the gauze. Um, that was the first changing, right? She changes it. Um, she's applying pressure and she's like, okay, like, are you in any pain? Are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm not in any any pain like if anything the smell of blood is just getting me very nauseated like can you give me some nausea meds um that's pretty much it cool awesome maybe 30 minutes pass and I'm like yo uh I think it's bleeding again we end up opening the um the gauze and taking the gauze off and it wasn't just bleeding again that shit had been oozing the entire 30 minutes so at this point she's like huh it's still bleeding. And now she's sitting there and, like, just pressing on my chest. And, mind you, my chest was already super sore from the permacath placement procedure. Still fresh from that procedure. Um, So it's bleeding. It's bleeding. It's bleeding. And at this point, you know, she's a new nurse, uh, which... Again, it's not a problem, but if you don't know what to do, your instinct should be, let me call my supervisor. And that was her instinct. So she's like, look, um, I'm going to call my supervisor to come in and assess the situation as well to see if there's anything that she could do different than in what I'm doing. And I'm like, yeah, like the more people, the merrier, bring her ass in. Why am I still bleeding? And, you know, she's pressing on it. The supervisor comes in. She's like, oh my gosh, she starts freaking out. And you know, the fact that they were freaking out made me freak out even more. Um, I was already freaking out. And um, when they were scared to address the situation, it made me very scared to address the situation or to even be in the situation itself. Um, we weren't sure why I was bleeding. We weren't sure how to stop the bleeding. Their instincts was to apply pressure, Um, but at one point, they run out of gauze on the damn floor to address the site. So they're like, oh my God, we ran out of gauze. Who's going to run to the other floor to go get gauze? There's three nurses in my room at the time, and one nurse, she dips. She goes to try to get other gauze. The other nurse is like, I'm going to try to go get a weight to see if we can use the weights instead of... um, you know, having to apply pressure ourselves, we could use the weights on on your chest at this point. I'm asking for pain meds because of the pain I was feeling by them pressing on the site, so them consistently pressing on a fresh wound um, unbearable like i now my pain tolerance is high as hell because if I could survive that night oh my god like I'm I'm gonna be okay you know and uh that night you know these nurses are coming in and out trying to apply pressure at this point it's like 1 a.m 2 a.m the doctor finally gets there because they had been paging him this whole time he gets there and his first instinct is let me take a picture of the site and upload it to my chart which You know, looking back, good idea, doc, because I want my daytime team to know what was going on at night, Um, but he doesn't do anything else. He takes a picture and he's like, I need to call the dialysis team because I can't address this. This isn't my department. What the fuck do you mean it isn't your department? Now, mind you, this is the night that I told my mom, like, you could go home because she had been sleeping there the whole time. And I was like, you got to go home and take care of yourself. And I'm like, yeah, my dad's coming in the morning. Like, we're going to have breakfast together. Um, My dad is not someone who misses work. And me being in the hospital, he missed so many days of work. But on top of that, he showed up late various times. uh, Because he was going to have breakfast with me, you know, or he was going to come and have lunch with me, or whatever the case. When my bleeding did not stop. When the nurses were like, there's nothing we can do but apply pressure. And applying pressure not only was painful but wasn't working. I felt like I was going to bleed out. Like, I don't know if you've ever had an experience of bleeding a lot. like, But not only is the smell of blood just that shit triggers me now to the point of just wanting to throw up. But the amount of blood that was just dripping down my chest was very, very scary. Um, You know, all these people were being called supervisors, dialysis techs, doctors, other nurses, but nothing was being done right at one point in the night um i think it was like 3 a.m maybe 4 a.m i finally like i decide that i wanted to record my final words and I, i actually had forgot that i did that um but like the other day when i was writing the script um i had was looking through my camera and was looking at pictures that I took during my hospital stay. And there were videos of me recording my final words and me being like, if, you know, if you're hearing this video, it's because I did not survive tonight. And I want to say that the nurses, you know, did their best in trying to save me. It was the UCLA staffing and lack of resources that killed me tonight doctors saying that they don't, that this isn't their department into helping me. Um, And just like, I was just going off and like pretty much saying goodbye, you know, letting it be. uh, That was the last, the last thing I was going to say. And the last thing I was going to say was going to be like, y'all fucked up. You fucked up and you killed me. Like, here it is, strike two, because they fucked up on the surgery, right? They didn't cover my shit correctly. And now here it is again, where they weren't able to address the situation correctly. Nurses didn't know what to do. Supervisors weren't coming to the room. Even though it was labeled as an emergency situation, you know, I'm already anemic when your hemoglobin drops to a certain point you like you won't survive and my my hemoglobin was already at an eight it was dropping to who knows what they needed to give me they ended up needing to give me a transfusion the next day but that's a story I'll get into right now so this whole night I'm bleeding I'm bleeding I'm bleeding I'm recording my final words I'm you know cursing out the fucking nurses because I'm like what do you mean you know, I'm just angry, I'm scared, I don't know what to do, I'm, you know, like, pleading for my fucking life, like, for real, for real, did not want to go, like, that was, it wasn't my time, and I didn't want, I didn't want to die, like, at all, and no one could do anything, like, It was so frustrating. Like, all these people coming in and no one could save me. And I'm, like, screaming, like, fucking save me. Do what you have to do. Save me. And all they kept offering was fucking pain meds. And I was like, don't give me that shit. Don't give it to me because I'm going to fall asleep. And I did not want to fall asleep. I was so scared. So fucking scared. But... It was around, like, 5 a.m. that I decided to call my parents and, like, I think this is it, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't think I'm going to make it, and, like, you know, I call my dad first because, you know, he can hold that shit. Like, he's actually really good at putting his emotions aside, and so I call him, and I'm like, Dad, like, I don't know what's going on, but no one could save me. I'm bleeding. I <laughs> I can't stop bleeding. And he's like, what? Like, what the fuck do you mean? Like, he comes, he rushes. He's like, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Like, he comes over real fast. And then I call my mom right after. I talk to my dad. And I'm like, mom, like, same thing. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm scared. I haven't stopped bleeding. And she's like, why haven't you called me? Why didn't you call me earlier? And I was like, I thought I could do this myself. Like, but I can't you know I need you guys I need you and I couldn't I couldn't do it myself it wasn't until my parents showed up uh like dead ass like 7 six thirty, like causing a ruckus like screaming at the nursing staff to stop my bleeding at this point I ended up getting when they showed up I was like give me the pain meds because they got me you know like I don't I don't have to worry about going under, going on code, because they're going to have my back. Like, I'll be good. But um, they got there, and I, I, like, really just, like, gave up and, like, passed out. Like, that, like, I was still awake, but, like, energy was gone. Like, I couldn't even hold my head up anymore. Like... Arms were weak, like I lost so much blood that I couldn't even speak for myself anymore. My dad's like cursing out the nurses. He's like, call the you know, call the the surgical team, like call the attending who did the procedure, like do what you have to fucking do. Like my mom's there, my you know, holding my hand, just letting my dad handle his because he was handling it. He was fucking handling it. But the shit that pissed me off was that They had to come in and cause a fucking scene for me to get care. Because the second they showed up, maybe like 20, 30 minutes later, the surgical staff ended up coming into the room and giving me a shot of DDAVP, which is desmopressin. It's a clotting promoter. They gave me a shot of this shit and that shit stopped bleeding. It's okay. Not like immediately like that, but immediate enough for me to be like, God bless, you know, like thank fucking God. And, but like, where the fuck was this medicine or this advice when I was bleeding at midnight? Why did I have to bleed all the way until 8 a.m.? for them to do some shit like are you fucking kidding me like oh my god where was this care earlier where was this fucking care earlier like that's all I had been asking for all night and not one doctor could give that advice or to suggest that medicine the nurses I mean they don't know I mean after a time in your nursing career you know a lot of medicines. You start seeing what medicines are used for. Not one nurse was able to suggest this very, very common clotting promoter or even clotting medicine to begin with. Questionable if you ask me. Like no one could do something in that amount of time. Like they're fucking lucky my hemoglobin didn't drop to a point of me needing to be put on a ventilator. Because again, like recap if I'm put on a ventilator, I only have 15 minutes. I only have 15 minutes for you to save me. And let's be honest, if I would have been put on the ventilator at the time, I would not be here today because they did, they would not have been able to save me in the 15 minutes. That's all I got to say. So when they finally stopped my bleeding, um, I was able to get, my dialysis session that day. They were able to slow it down. Um, It wasn't until the next day, which brings me to part three of this podcast, um, when I found out that my lupus started attacking my blood. So let me get into that. So the day after I experienced my permacath bleeding, I, like, that whole morning, so what is it, February 3rd, because the, or maybe actually February 4th, anyways, around then, I'm telling all my, all my doctors, like, fuck this hospital, like, this is already, this is already enough for me, you guys fucked up on the procedure, you fucked up with this sight bleeding, there had been multiple situations with nurses that you know, I can't even get into on the podcast. Like I'm peri- cherry chick. What is it? Cherry picking what situations I'm even sharing with y'all. Um, so I'm telling all my doctors, I want to leave. I'm figuring out the process for transfer, trying to get to a different hospital. Like I'm not trying to stop the care that's happening. I'm just stopping the care that's happening with these doctors, with this UCLA Santa Monica staff. Um, so these doctors are like, look, we have some bad news because there's, um, there's no way we can allow you to leave today. And I was like, allow me to leave. And they're like, if you leave, it's going to have to be on AMA. Now, if you don't know what AMA is, that's against medical advice. Now, to remind you, I'm already listed as a non-compliant patient on paper, um, on record, because I didn't take my meds, right? Something that was incorrectly noted, but noted to say the least. So if I want a transplant in the future, being listed as a non-compliant patient will stop me from getting a kidney or a transplant. Um, so to list me as AMA, will go against me even more. So I'm like, fuck that. You're not about to put me as AMA because if you're putting me as AMA, that means that I don't trust your advice and your medical treatment. Like, I do understand my lupus is attacking my kidneys. I do understand that I need dialysis. I'm not saying I want to leave because, you know, fuck the treatment. I'm saying I want to leave because I don't trust this medical staff. Um, I don't trust this hospital and what is going on in this hospital. So the reason that the doctors were like, we can't let you leave is because my lupus ended up attacking my blood. So it had attacked my heart by putting that fluid around my heart. It had attacked my kidneys, now putting me on dialysis. But for some reason, out of nowhere it started to attack my blood. And um, that's pretty much called hemolysis, which is your your blood cells breaking. So my blood cells were lysing. Uh, but on top of that, uh, my platelets, my platelet count was super low like, low, and when you have low platelets, that means your blood can't clot, which is why um my site, even after they gave me that DD um, AVP, the clotting promoter, it stopped in that moment, but later that day, actually, it started bleeding again, uh, but this time, they knew what to give me, they knew, like, how to handle the situation, yada, yada, so it wasn't that, like, scary, I mean, I was, I mean as you can tell the situation still bothers me um but they're able they were able to address it in a different situation the second time versus the first time they don't know how or why my lupus started attacking my blood overnight really but I have my own uh theories I think that um because lupus uses stress as its Um, power to attack any organ it wants to. Um, I was stressed in December on some personal um, personal things, and I feel like that stress gave my kidneys the power to attack, or gave my lupus the power to attack my kidneys, to attack my heart. The night of me almost, or feeling like I was going to die, that stress, that fear that anger, those emotions that were coming out of that situation. I believe that from that situation, my lupus got the power to attack my blood. Now, there's no way to prove that. But when you know, you know, you know, when you know your body, you know your body. When you have a stressful situation with lupus, it triggers a flare. The notes inside of the discharge paper state, that there could have been a various number of factors contributing to the attack of or the start of hemolysis and thrombot- thrombotopenia, which is low platelets. Um, you know, there's all these different things that could have contributed to it. So we don't know what contributed to the fact that her lupus is now attacking her blood. But honestly, I, I truly believe it was from the stress of these doctors, me be me not trusting, me being fearful, um, of their care, is what gave the lupus the strength. Right, that all that stress gave it enough strength to now attack my blood. Um, that's my opinion on that. So because of this hemolysis and uh, thrombosis, thrombosopenia, I think that's how you pronounce it. Honestly, that could be way off. But my low platelet count, um, and the blood breaking in half, like literally lysing on me. They had to give me uh, blood transfusions and platelet transfusions. I can't remember how many they gave me, but I think it was like one bag of blood, two black, two bags of platelets. Either way, they gave me they gave me those um, transfusions. And on top of that, I started a um, an infusion of a chemotherapy regimen called rituximab or rituxin for short. So when I was given all of these fluids, because blood is considered a fluid, um, rituxin was considered a fluid. I got all these fluids. I got the fluids during the day, the rituxin at night. So I went to sleep with the infusion of rituxin. I woke up on the sixth, so at like two AM, um, with shortness of breath. Like I, I was breathing like <laughs> very, very short breaths. Um, I pretty much couldn't breathe at all. So I'm telling my nurse, um. Like, hey, I, I can't breathe, and I I need your help because I you know I I can't take a deep breath, and even just saying like I can't breathe, took all the breath out of me. Um, and she's like, she looks over to like the vital uh computer, the stats machine, I don't know what it's called, but she looks at it. and She's like, well, your O two levels fine. Like, it says here that you're able to breathe, and I was like, really? It says there because I'm. T- I'm telling you physically, me, myself, and I, that I cannot breathe, that I'm not able to take a deep breath. I'm super uncomfortable. I need a breathing treatment. I need you to call the doctor in here um, because I can't breathe. And she's like, well, uh, you know, doctors are only paged in cases of emergencies. So I'm not gonna page the doctor just yet. We'll see how you feel in about 20 to 30 minutes. And if you're still feeling this way, then we'll go ahead and um, call the doctor. But for now, we're going to stop the infusion of the rituxin. And I'm like, okay, like, what the fuck? Because I'm telling you that I can't breathe. And she was just like, I'll, I'll be back to check on you. She stopped the rituxin because the rituxin was putting fluid into me, right? So she's trying to see, like, if we stop the rituxin, are you going to be able to catch your breath? Or, um, like, you know, it was kind of like, checking off all boxes and Ritexan was one of the boxes that needed to be unchecked because I was already on that infusion so about like two thirty to 3 a.m that night I got up out of my bed and started walking around the room because I didn't want to fall asleep again my whole 15 minute rule was in the back of my head um if I go under I only have 15 minutes for them to save me and looking at this fucking staffing they ain't gonna save me right that's how I was feeling I was feeling like uh-uh if I go under, I'm a goner. Um, so I'm walking around, I'm pacing around the room, trying to stay awake because when I was sitting and laying down and trying to do like open like opening lung exercises, like yoga, not yoga poses, but like if you YouTube um, lung exercises, there there's a few like hand movements you can do where like you're physically like pushing the air in front of you and bringing that back. I was doing that. I was using my aerobica. Which is a breathing a breathing tool like a um used for patients with um pneumonia um it's supposed to be used to help remove any like mucus from inside the lungs because it shakes your lungs, so when you blow into it, it causes a shaking motion and causes you to spit up mucus so you know I'm doing all of this by myself. The nurse didn't offer any of this advice. She was just kind of like, we'll see how you feel in like three minutes Um, or, you know, 15, 30 minutes. Um, So she, you know, comes back in, she's checking on me and I'm walking around the room. And, you know, it didn't help that I was walking, I guess, because she's like, oh, like you're feeling better. And I'm like, no, girl, I ain't feeling better. I'm like, notice I'm still breathing short of breath, like very small increments, not even enough to have me up. But the only reason I'm standing is because I don't want to fall asleep. And I'm tired it's two a m it's well it's now three a m right and so I'm using all these tools I'm doing what I have to do to survive. She finally gets me um albuterol right the breathing treatment, the little spray to help open up my lungs. It doesn't do shit. well, it wasn't going to do anything because it wasn't like um I can't remember what albuterol is used for, but it's definitely not used to bring mucus or fluid out of the lungs from my understanding of it um so my stats at this time are still fine what that means is I'm technically getting enough oxygen I was not getting enough oxygen there was something wrong like I the machine is a damn liar because there's no way um and at this point I'm remembering my dad because my dad he is a um respiratory therapist shout out him he is a respiratory therapist and in all his years of being a respiratory therapist he has always always like threw in some advice on what to do if you're having trouble breathing in a hospital or you know do your best to not ever be put on a ventilator, so this whole night I'm like, Paulina, you can breathe, you can breathe, you can breathe, like keep doing what you have to do, do the aerobica at this point, I'm spitting up mucus like crazy, like I don't know if you've ever seen the throw up bags that they have in the hospital, but they're pretty big, um they're purple, i I guess it depends on the hospital, but for UCLA, they're purple they're about like your forearm length um so it's pretty long I spit up at till like at 4 a.m at 4 a.m I spit up at least a bag and a half of sputum and to top it off it was pink it started off clear and then turned pink right and when there's any color at all in your sputum that goes for immediate testing because pink or red is blood in the sputum. Testing for my sputum didn't happen till 7am because the doctor at the time was like, you know, I don't think it's concerning. But when she started switching shifts, the other doctor, because they switch shifts, they switch shifts at 7am. The other doctor who was taking over was like, look, Um, that's actually really concerning and we should get it tested. So then all of a sudden she wanted to test my spit anyways. Um, they tried to give me Lasix to help me pee because if it was too much fluid, then the Lasix should help me, you know, pee it out. Didn't do anything. I didn't go to the bathroom at all that night. Um, so at this, it was at this moment that my mom, like it was probably like 5 a.m., maybe 5.30. Um, my mom's like, I don't know. My mom's a yogi, ride or die. You know, she's all about that um, homeopathic lifestyle. Uh, So shout out her here because at this moment, um, she recommends a fucking yoga pose. <laughs> and like, in that moment, I was like, I guess, you know, like I'm going to do what I have to do to breathe because I physically could not breathe. And that shit is so scary. Like if you've ever suffocated, (laughs) if anyone's ever choked you, like, I don't know, like how to explain that situation, but being like stopping your breath, that is a scary feeling, like not being able to catch your breath. Um, so she recommends this yoga pose it's pretty much like separate legs you you open them up like if you're taking a step forward um and you're putting your head to your knee and like you're kind of putting your hands up above your head and you're leaning forward bending all the way forward head to knee um fun fact it's the 10th pose in bikram yoga bikram yoga if you've never done it i highly recommend that shit is like super intense but also um like you feel so accomplished after very relaxing your body is very stretched um and it's just like an overall these poses are supposed to help um really regulate and improve um Not just your posture or your muscle strength, but also, like, the blood flow of your body. Um, And blood flow is really good. So there's various benefits to this head-to-knee pose. Um, But the biggest one was to bring mucus out of my lungs. And sure enough, when I put my head-to-knee, that mucus started, like, just falling out of like dripping out of my mouth like I didn't even have to spit I was just keeping my mouth open and that shit was just coming out so after doing this for about like 15 minutes I was breathing so much better I spit out um another bag another purple bag of the like throw up bag um and I was able to breathe so the during The 15 minutes, the doctor ended up coming in, you know, the nursing, the nurse ended up coming in and they're just like, oh my God, like, what are you doing? And I was like, bitch, I can't breathe. Like, hello, I'm trying to figure out what I need to do in order to breathe. Like, I don't know why you guys think this shit is funny or why you think it isn't serious enough to have your attention, but I'm doing what I have to do again to survive. And, um, you know by then they're like okay well um they're noticing that my stats are now improving even more but on top of that that uh I was able to breathe right I ended up getting another breathing treatment um to help me breathe even more but it um Just the fact that I had to scream for support, to scream for these breathing treatments because the nurse was like, no, like, you're fine, just makes me want to point out the importance of communication with your doctors. So I'm going to take a quick side note before I jump into part, um, like, four of my hospital stay or part five um, and just emphasize the importance of communication. Communication is key wherever you're at, whether that's in a relationship, whether that's, you know, between you and your teachers or, you know, I don't even know, you and law enforcement. I mean, it's just super important. But it's this situation that I've been in at the hospital just emphasized how important it is between the medical staffing and the patient's or the patients and the medical staffing at any um, medical institution. So first and foremost, any of you nurses out there, um, your main responsibility is to be the advocate for the patients. Patients can be advocates for themselves, but there are times where they cannot speak up for themselves. Like I was very, very blessed to be able to, (laughs) To be able to have the opportunity to cuss these these doctors out. Like, all jokes aside, like, I was able to use my voice and to scream for what I needed while I was in there. To complain to the people who needed to be complained to in order for me to be heard. The fact that I even had to complain to the chief nurse, David Bailey at UCLA, in order to get some proper fucking care was ridiculous. But after I complained to his ass, all of a sudden everyone knew my name, they wanted to treat me nice, they wanted to take care of me like, shit, you should have been doing that before. But regardless, if you're a nurse, not only is your job to take care of the patients, but it is also to advocate for them. Right? You are the main line between patients and doctors. Patients can't just go and call up the doctor. You're that person to call them up. Now I know sometimes the doctors don't read the page right away. Be fucking annoying, be annoying, be the nurse that's like, damn, she just keeps fucking calling like, yeah, because your patient wants that doctor there or your patient wants this service or whatever it may be. You may not think it's serious at the time, but trust me, your patient does. Um, so that's nurses and patients. You should be able to speak up for your patient, period doctors and doctors. The communication between specialists is key. I noticed while being in the hospital that doctors only stay on um, service for about a week and then they switch and they end up leaving the hospital and switching doctors. Now in between that switch off, the doctor that left and the doctor that came on um, the doctor that came on is relying on the notes from the previous doctor. And if the previous doctor sucks at taking notes, well, then the doctor who just came on, isn't going to know jack about the case that they are on, right? They're going to start from brand new. And that's what was happening to me when I was in the hospital. I had multiple specialists on my case. I had the rheumatologist, lupus doctors, or autoimmune doctors. I had, um, endocrinologists or thyroid doctors. I had nephrologists, kidney doctors. I had cardiologists. I had, um, dermatologists. I had gynecologists. I mean, the lists were endless. I had a lot of specialists on my care. Um, and a lot of the times it felt like that, or it wasn't even, I knew, I knew for facts that they were not sharing like important details about my case. Um, from the medicines that I was on to the surgeries that took place, to um, how I was feeling about certain situations to the next steps in my care, like all of this shit was not being shared between staffs, uh, between the specialists. It wasn't again until um, the night that my lupus started attacking my blood. It wasn't until that day where I was like, I'm leaving. I'm transferring. Fuck you guys. You guys are fucking killing me. Like I was going off on these doctors. And that's how I was talking to them because I couldn't believe that all this shit was happening. Like there was stuff that I was experiencing. Right. So, uh, it wasn't until I was like, you guys are fumbling the bag. You're going to kill me because you guys don't know how to talk to each other. You don't have time to spend talking to each other. My case isn't a simple case. And I need you guys to work with each other and instead, you guys are passing notes? Are you fucking kidding me? Anything is mistranslated in a note. In a text, shit is mistranslated. Sometimes you're you're messaging someone and they think you're having attitude. Really, you're not having attitude. It's just how they read it, right? Like, tone of voice was misinterpreted in the text. Whatever. They were damn near sending texts to each other and not understanding my case. So I'm like, you guys need to talk face-to-face, over phone, like, whatever the fuck it is, like you need, you need to figure it out because you're not doing your damn job. When I talked to them, when I belittled their care, okay. Cause that's really what it was. When I stopped acknowledging them as doctors and started acknowledging them as people. And I literally was like, fuck the doctor, doctor label. You don't deserve that shit. And that's what I was telling them. I'm like, you don't deserve to be called a doctor. I'm going to call you by your first name. Until you start doing what you got to do. When I started talking to them like that. Oh, all of a sudden. All of a sudden. They got, um, like the care started happening more smoothly. There wasn't any miscommunication. They were actually speaking to each other. They started coming to the room together versus separate. Um, and it was like shit was changing. You know, like my care was actually being taken a lot more serious. Uh. But the communication, if you're going to be a doctor, it's super important to communicate with other specialists and take the time to actually make sure that your thoughts and your opinions, your theories, your hypothesis, your plan of treatment is being interpreted correctly Um, and your reasoning is being interpreted correctly. Like all of that is important. Um, Patients and doctors, like patients if you're someone who goes in the hospital a lot like you probably know by now speak the fuck up but if you don't don't be afraid to make the doctor explain themselves multiple times because I'm gonna be honest a lot of the times they rush the care they I mean they have a lot of patients right so they're gonna come in and they're gonna be fast I mean I had a nephrologist who literally would come in and he was really good at his job like really fucking good like not knocking any of his shit, but he would come in and he would literally spend like 0.2 seconds with me. And like, I'm not exaggerating. It was like, Oh, how are you doing? Good. Okay. So today we're doing this. Okay. Bye. I had to be like, wait, as he's like walking out the door, you need to explain that again, because I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you need to wait until, you know, this happens because, um, I'm not I'm not understanding your plan of treatment. Why are you doing that? Like make them explain it to you. Because they won't do it. They won't take the time to do it unless you fucking make them. And if you didn't know, you can request that your nurse is with you when your doctors come in the room with you. And that's something I did after the my blood lysing. After that, I I required it that my nurse had to be in the room with me um, to help translate what the doctors are saying, because a lot of the times they use medical jargon and patients don't know that medical jargon, right? They don't know what it means. So there you are um, pretending like you know what is being said and you don't, you know? So the communication between patients and doctors, like doctors will say they did everything to explain and technically they did. But medical jargon is a whole different language. Like you don't know that unless you practice it or unless you're sick enough and you've done your research and you know what the fuck they're talking about. But besides that, you're there, you know, kind of questioning what the hell they said and hoping that whatever they're planning to do for you is actually going to work. So instead of guessing and questioning what's going on, or not questioning, but being confused about what's going on after they leave question them while they're in the room question the fact that you don't understand what's going on and that's okay because you're not a doctor you you're not gonna know and if you do i mean more power to you but if you don't ask your questions right make them explain it to you make them stay and make them explain it to you and sometimes they are going to try to rush out they are going to try to get the hell out of there as fast as they can but scream fucking scream Speak the fuck up. There was one time that I had been bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. Um, no, this is like a third time now that I was bleeding. And I had been calling on the, I had been calling the nursing station for help. Like, oh, I need, you know, I need, um, I need gauze. I can address the site myself, but I need gauze. I need this. I need that. No one's coming an hour, maybe an hour and a half, you know, passed by. I finally pressed the button and I was like, I'm fucking bleeding. I need help. I need help. Yeah, I was, you know, doing a a whole girl cries wolf situation, but best believe they came into my fucking room right away. Like, that's all I got to say. Scream for your care, because at the end of the day, you're the only one who cares about you. The only one. All these nurses, all these doctors, they all go home at the end of the day. They go home. They go home to their families. They're not sick. They're not, you know, maybe you might have a doctor worrying about your care, but let's be real. They're not going to be thinking about you after they leave your room. They weren't thinking about me at first. At the beginning of my care, I was just some data sheet to them. I was a name on a sheet and that was it. It wasn't until I forced these doctors to come into my room and speak to me that now I was a name and a face and a person and someone that they knew and someone that they had to care for you know shit was different but I had to be the biggest advocate for myself in order to even get that basic care so do what you got to do like that's my advice do what the fuck you got to do and let them let them be like is this girl serious yeah I'm fucking serious you know like I've been in here for far too long I need the proper care and you're not giving me the proper care. So I'm going to complain and I'm going to do what I have to do to get the proper care. Now, last form of communication is doctors and nurses. If you're a nurse, again, you're the main line between the patient and the doctor, right? You are the messenger. And I know you normally get the bad end of the stick from the patient, the patient's frustration, the patient's fear, the you know, the patients, all the patients, negative energy, negative vibe, you're getting that shit all the time. And I know that fucking sucks. I mean, I can only imagine that sucks because I am thinking about the patient I was when I was frustrated and I was scared. And let me be honest, the next day, I would always apologize to my nurse. I am so sorry. You know, like it was a rough night and the understanding nurses and the nursing, the nurses who know what they signed up for are like, yeah, like, it's okay. You're going through a lot. The nurses who like, clearly could give a fuck about their job um are like yeah yeah okay sure communication between doctors and nurses nurses do not be intimidated by no doctor are you kidding me are you kidding me if a patient is asking for a specific doctor you may not think like a specific specialist you may not think it's important but if that patient is asking for it then your job is to advocate for it not to question whether whether or not they're right. You just tell the doctor, patient wants this. Patient wants this. Your job is to be the messenger. That's it. On top of all the other shit, not just that's it. But on top of all the other care that you provide, you are also supposed to be the messenger. Don't be the person that stops the message. Like, let the doctor be the one who stops that shit. Don't be the person who gets in the way of the patient's care because you thought that they didn't need that. They Whatever it was, you know. you fill in the blank. You are the messenger, so be the messenger. Don't be intimidated by the doctor. Oh, the doctor might be annoyed that I'm messaging them another time. Who fucking cares? Who cares? Like, honestly, yeah, they might be annoyed. Yeah, they might complain about you. But and what? At the end of the day, you're gonna be like, I'm doing what I have to do for my patient. They're not gonna be mad at that. Like, let's be real. You are doing what you have to do for your patient. You know, yes, there are certain boundaries, there are certain, you know, faults to that, but at the end of the day, you are the messenger for your patient. So be the best messenger. Uh, Don't be the one who stops the message because you think it's a silly message, right? Like, let let that note go through And let the doctor decide if it's silly or not. Um, So that's my quick segment. And it wasn't even that quick. But that's my quick segment on communication between doctors. Let me hop back in into um, me getting discharged. And that's the end of the podcast. So I was finally discharged on Valentine's Day. So I had been in there since. January 18th and then was discharged on February 14th um after I had the night of me not being able to breathe they found out that they just overloaded me with fluids they gave me way too much um fluids at a time so the fluids that they gave me were the blood transfusions the platelet transfusions there were tuximab Transfusion and um, then they started IVIG, which is an intravenous immune immunoglobulin, um, which is pretty much treated or given to treat antibody deficiencies that help, uh, that's pretty much helping to fight infections or prevent infections. Um, but in lupus patients specifically, it helps boost. Um, low platelet and blood, low blood count levels. So since I had both low platelet and low blood count levels, um, they gave me IVIG to help that. Um, so I didn't have any more complications because now I was getting dialysized every day. They were removing about, uh, three liters each, each day, um, which completely dropped my, uh, my weight, like, I was 160. When I went into the hospital, I left at like 125 130. Um, So all of the all of that weight that they removed, it wasn't weight, it was fluid that I was keeping because my kidneys couldn't remove it. Um, So upon me getting discharged, the doctors weren't even sure whether or not that, um like, what they were doing was going to help me. They weren't even sure because, honestly, um, rituximab takes about two or, I think, four weeks to actually kick in. So I had my first transfusion on um, the 6th of February, so they weren't going to know until like end of february whether or not it actually helped ivig same thing they weren't going to know for about a couple um a couple of days actually so not that long but my fortic which was another medication used to fight my lupus they weren't going to know if that was working for another 4 weeks so all of the medications that they were giving me at this point, they were just monitoring whether or not I was good. I was off oxygen. I was off the, uh, heart monitor. Um, I was pretty much just staying there and building up my bill. And let me tell you that bill that I left with, I left with, a my medical bill of at least a million dollars, you guys, like at least a million dollars. And, um, that shit's just ridiculous. Like, imagine going in and, like, there are people who who lose their homes because of medical bills. Like, there are people who, who really, like, lose everything after a hospital stay. And I'm lucky enough that that's not my situation. And I do have my parents to help me and, you know, people willing to donate. Um, financially to me, like, all of these things, like, God bless, like, for real, for real. But at this point, like, on the 9th of February, I'm telling my doctors, like, if you're just watching me, like, let me go home. And I can take my own blood pressure. I can take my meds. I can go to dialysis. I can do all these things. And then I'll go to my doctor's appointments, and I'll let you know if I'm not feeling well Or you'll see with all my doctor's appointments that I have, if there's something not right, like I'm going to my hematologist just as often as I'm going to my rheumatologist, as my nephrologist, as my cardiologist, as, you know, my gynecologist, as my dermatologist, as all these specialists, like I'm seeing them damn near every week that if anything's wrong, they're going to catch it, you know, and it took them a couple days to agree with me, but since my BP was still high, they're like, we're not sure why your blood pressure's still high. Like, what could be the cause of this? I'm like, what do you mean? You guys are stressing me the fuck out. Like, my BP is high is because I don't feel safe here. I don't feel like you guys are taking care of me. So, duh, my shit is going to be high. My shit's going to be so high because I'm scared. I'm physically scared. I feel like I almost died twice, three times here, and you guys didn't do anything to change it, so get me the hell out, you know? Anyways, they ended up letting me go home with the note of, I have to go to all my doctor's appointments. I have to go to every dialysis session. I mean, I was gonna go anyways, but those were the catches. Those were the requirements of me staying out. And um, let me just say, since then, I have been in therapy. I have been doing these podcasts that have been healing me in its own way. Um, but more importantly, I hope it's helping any of you out there You know, who have gone through a crazy hospital experience, because let me be real, I know I'm not the only one who's experienced something like this, whether it was at UCLA, whether it was at county, like wherever you're at, like you should be getting some decent medical care. And like, I know we all know that the medical system's a joke, but like, God damn, like why the hell are we paying so much for this fucking care? Insurance, a joke. Like, it's crazy. It's so crazy. So that was my rant on my UCLA stay. But all in all, I want to just thank you guys for hearing and staying all the way to the end. And, you know, it was an emotional ride, to say the least, a scary one. And I guess the reason I wanted to share it was because I know I'm not the only one who's experienced something like this. Whether it was a month stay, five month stay, or even a week stay in the hospital, like everyone, or not everyone, but there are a lot of people out there who have experienced something similar, something probably even worse, um, especially if you have an autoimmune disease. Like, people who suffer from an autoimmune disease, whether that's diabetes, whether that's thyroidism, lupus, um, arthritis, like, any of these diseases, Addison's disease, like, celiac, I mean, the autoimmune diseases are endless. And if you've ever experienced an autoimmune, or you have an autoimmune, or you know someone who has an autoimmune disease or this runs in your family, um, or a friend that you know, like, know that they are really suffering in silence, because it is an it is a disease that not many people understand. And like, you're lucky for not knowing you're lucky for being ignorant towards the disease. But honestly, like, it's an invisible disease, like people who suffer from autoimmune diseases are often overlooked because of the fact that you can't physically see their illness like people with arthritis you can't see that their joints hurt people with lupus you can't see it unless it's on their skin and they have um i can't remember the name for it but there's a type of lupus where it attacks your skin it makes you rash all over unless you have that like physically you can't see someone like you won't look at me and think oh yeah that girl has lupus she's clearly suffering for thyroidism like hypothyroidism like no you won't know you won't see it you won't be able to recognize but just know like I'm fighting that battle every day um and same goes for the medical field like a lot of the times patients are their pain is overlooked because doctors don't see it they can't um quantum they can't put a quantity to it you know um they're not able to physically see how hurt or in pain someone is. So then they dismiss it. A lot of the times autoimmune diseases are dismissed and patients are dismissed for their pain, their, you know, whatever they're going through. And this hospital stay, man, was I dismissed multiple times. And not just because I have an autoimmune disease, but because of my age, like ageism is a huge thing. And I'm going to bring it up as often as I can because like for real because of my age the amount of times that I was complaining or like saying how much help I needed I was always overlooked there were a lot of nurses that were like oh you want pain meds you know you should really overthink that and like there was one time that I was asking for nothing but Tylenol and the nurse was like Um, we can only give you, um, which is like one under fentanyl. And I'm like, why? Like, I just need, you know, I have a headache. I just need some Tylenol. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, this is the only one that's on your chart. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, so anyways, you know, be an advocate for yourself if you have an autoimmune disease, but also if you know someone who has an autoimmune disease, take a second to be there for them as best as you can. You know, you can't really understand what they're going through, but just being a solid person in their life goes a long way. You know, trying to understand goes a long freaking way. Um, Because a lot of the times, like I said, their illness is being overlooked. They are being dismissed straight out. And um, I bet you you, if you take a second to try to understand what they're going through and hey how are you feeling today I know you have lupus and just wanted to check in like how's that going for you that will go a long way for them and um it'll be great greatly appreciated but again if you ever want to reach out catch me at or on instagram at a kidney for paulina where four is the number not the word um I'm there to hear any comments, concerns, questions and, you know, here for you if you need to vent too. Again, thank you for listening. Next episode coming next week.